have a Bible, then you'll find a blue one underneath the seat in front of you, and in those Bibles, we'll be on page 567. It's probably falling open by now at this point, page 567. We've spent the fall together working through Galatians, and um, next week, we will have uh, the last message on the book. Uh, The book of Galatians was written with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and a real sense of urgency. And there's no surprise why, given its subject matter. The aim of this letter is to bring followers of God back to the gospel of God and then to bring them all the way through to their final salvation. Today, if you've been with us in this journey, we'll come to what may feel like a shocking twist because Paul is going to raise an issue that we would not have seen coming. One of the ways the book of Galatians gets at drawing Christians back to the truth about Jesus and then preparing them to meet Jesus in the end is by talking about money. The whole book presses home the glorious truth that we Christians are not under law, but we're under grace. And being people under grace, we are driven, brothers and sisters, not by works, but by the Spirit. The flesh does not master us. Rather, the Spirit bears good fruit in us. And so the last several weeks, we've been learning together a lot about what that third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, what He does inside of followers of Jesus Christ. We've seen that we are to walk by the Spirit, that we're to be led by the Spirit, that we show the fruit of the Spirit, that we live by the Spirit, and that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Today we're going to be told yet another thing, as followers of Jesus Christ we do, as the Spirit of God takes upon us the continuance of the work of God. And interestingly, maybe surprisingly for some of us, if not many of us, the issue that he takes up is the issue of money. You see, in the Spirit of God, we generously provide for the work of God, and that includes our finances. Our verses for this morning unpack the glorious truth that not only does the church raise money, but ultimately... The purpose of that raising money is to call Christians to stick with Jesus. Now, while it's true, certainly, that ministry is moved forward by ministry, by money, even more basic to the heartbeat of this particular passage in the Bible is the truth that what we do with money clarifies and crystallizes where we are with Jesus. So this morning, we're going to tackle the topic of generosity. And uh, frankly, I feel like I could vomit. This is not the topic I would be desiring to address to you, particularly in the way that Paul goes about it. This isn't the kind of sermon I'd ever preach if the Bible didn't drive the content of what we cover in our gatherings together. Now, thankfully, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Uh, It includes some of you. But even more than that, Um, I was encouraged this week as I was preparing 
and I came across a, a statement that Martin Luther made about this passage. That name's not familiar to you. Martin Luther was uh, one of the great reformers in the 1500s that God used to bring the church back to the gospel. And he wrote what is undoubtedly the most famous commentary that explains the book of Galatians. And in it, he says, I quote, I do not like to interpret such passages, for they seem to commend us pastors as they do. In addition, it gives the appearance of greed if one emphasizes these things too diligently to one's hearers, end quote. So I feel uncomfortable and I'm glad that someone who's uh, had a much bigger impact on the church than I ever will felt uncomfortable too. So if you feel uncomfortable, we're all uncomfortable together. All right? Now, if you'll look in your Bibles at Galatians 6, 6 to 10, Christy Rogers is going to come read for us. And if you weren't in our members meeting last Sunday night, then I would love to share with you that Christy and her husband Dan joined the church. So these are some of our newest church members. And thank you for coming to read for us, sister. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Thank you, Christy. If you want any dirt on uh, David Oaks, this is your person. Uh, Christy is David's sister. All right. I don't know if that works both ways yet, because we're just getting to know each other. But um, at least if you want to, you're the older sister. Okay, oldest and wisest, yes, all right. In our passage last Sunday morning, we saw that uh, Paul takes a, a particular example of how something works out, and he talks about it, and then he moves into the broader principle. So last week it was um, that we're to do a particular thing for each other when we fall into sin. And that doing that, going to one another, is an example of a broader principle that's bearing each other's burdens. And in this text that Christy just read for us, the same pattern follows. We have a a particular example of something and then a broader principle. And so we'll follow that as we look through the text this morning. The particular example that this paragraph begins with in verse 6 is the command to to pay your pastors. If you look with me at verse 6 again, it says, let the one who has taught the word, that's the, the scriptures, share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, frankly, as uncomfortable as I am with talking about this, the word of God drives our life as a church. And providentially, we're on this verse today. And providentially, God didn't allow me to get sick today, so I'm the one here. 
And so I have the privilege of talking about this verse. The Bible teaches repeatedly that to each local church is given the joy of covering the financial needs of those who do the heavy lifting of the preaching and teaching of the church. Now, to give you a sense that this isn't simply chapter 6, verse 6 in Galatians, let me show you just a small sample of other places the Bible teaches the same thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, you'll see it on the screen, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. I know when you think of me, you think of an ox. Um, and the laborer deserves his wages. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says something very similar. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then maybe the clearest in that same chapter, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Back in Galatians 6, you'll notice in the translation, if your Bible uses uh, ESV, as in the translation ESV, you'll notice that it uses the word share. Specifically, that's sharing the material responsibilities of the local church. If you're unconvinced uh, or confused when you read a particular translation of the Bible, the first thing you ought to do in your own Bible reading is pray, because it's ultimately the Holy Spirit who helps us understand what the Scriptures mean. But a second really practical thing you can do is read the same passage in a different translation. And that's something I did this past week, trying to understand this particular verse. The New Living translation uh, renders it this way, those who are taught the Word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Now, if you're making notes and you'd like to look at some other passages that use this same word in reference to money, then you can write down Romans chapter 12, verse 13, and Philippians 4, verse 15. Additionally, pretty much all of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 use the same language as this paragraph, and it's very clearly talking about financial generosity. So that's the, the what. It's, it's pretty plain and simple. But maybe the more complicated and complex issue for us to think about is why. Why is verse 6 in the Bible? And why is it a fact about how God has chosen to work? Why should ch churches cover the financial needs of those who bear the responsibility of the regular preaching and teaching ministry of the local church? Well, it's because giving addresses needs. Giving addresses needs, both present needs and eternal ones. Both present needs and eternal ones. So we could say there are at least two reasons why Galatians 6.6 6 is in our Bibles. There's a present reason, and there's an eternal reason. Let's think together first about the present reason, or the current reason. Friends, sound doctrine matters. Knowing the truth about the truth 
is of massive significance. Far more important than anything we're taught in our secular education is what we are taught in our spiritual educations. Math, science, and social studies are all good. They're, they're necessary. And in fact, we can worship God through learning more about how the world works. But what we learn about God through his word is the most important thing we can ever learn. Because what we think about when we think about God determines how we look at everything in life. Our lenses, if you will, through which we view everything in our existence is rooted ultimately in how we think about God. And what both the scriptures and church history testify is that the pulpit is the single biggest determiner of the health of a church. Biblical doctrine preached by godly pastors will be the principal chisel God uses to form a godly people. This is how God works. And to preach the whole counsel of God accurately and passionately over a long period of time takes an enormous amount of weekly time. So much time, in fact, that the pastor on the elder team of the church who's responsible for the weekly teaching of the church, won't have time to do much of anything else with his life. God's people need God's word. And God's word will not be preached consistently well without the generosity of the people of God because the pastors need to be freed up to devote the majority of their week to this very task. I think that's One reason why Galatians 6.6 is in our Bibles. And to put it in sort of practical terms, somewhere between 35 and 45 hours a week, every week, I have the privilege of devoting those hours to the responsibilities of studying and teaching the Scriptures. My job, of course, includes other things, but that's the bulk of the week. And what a gift that is to me and to you. What a gift your generosity is that allows me that amount of time. The only way that would be possible is because you shoulder the majority of me and my family's financial needs, in addition to providing a second pastor in Tad who is on the staff. And then we have even more additional pastors who are lay pastors. If I had to serve coffee or uh, train athletes or uh, deliver for Amazon or drive a school bus or instruct tap dancing classes, then I simply had, would not have 35 to 45 hours a week to spend on the preparation of the Word of God. And so the reason, the present reason why you should give to your church is that we all need God's Word. And we need not only to read it ourselves, but to hear it preached. And that takes time. But there's a second reason. There's a second reason why this is such an important issue. And it's the reason addressed in this particular passage. If you let your eyes glance back to your Bibles over verses 7, 8, and 9, 
what you'll see pressed is not the present need, but rather a future one. The second reason that we're told to give is that Christians giving today is ultimately about tomorrow. Christians giving today do so looking not to today, but to eternity. And that's what 7, 8, and 9 speak to. Brothers and sisters, there's an incredibly important spiritual reality that is being worked out in the physical realm of what we do with money. If I could put it directly, it's this. How we use our money reveals where we really are with Jesus. You see, we reap what we sow. If your direct deposit from work on the 15th hits your bank account and all of it goes to your own comfort and wants, if you get a little bit of money for a birthday gift or Christmas or a bonus at work and it burns a hole in your pocket until you can spend it, if clothes and a car and condos, vacation, eating out and hobbies... If those desires are actually what drive your life, if the pursuit of worldly success and the amassing of more and more and more and more material goods fills your worries more than anything else, then you are sowing to your flesh. And if you keep sowing to your flesh, the verse says, you will reap corruption. Now, that's a gentle way of saying that if your wallet or your purse isn't saved, then none of you is saved. If you sow to the world, you reap hell. But, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself increasingly motivated by the fact that God owns everything and everything you have has been gifted to you by Him, And it's gifted to you in order that through you, you would be a conduit for the continuation of the Word of God sounding forth from the churches of God. If you find yourself holding less and less tightly to all that God has entrusted you, then, friend, you are sowing to eternity. And these verses say that from Christ, you will reap eternal life. Now, does that raise a question in your minds? Does this poke in a potential problem? I think so. Maybe we could put it this way. That sounds like salvation by good behavior. Doesn't it? Why in the world would we spend all fall looking at chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 in Galatians that overwhelmingly say the same thing over and over and over and over and over? Only to get to chapter 6 and it tell us that we are in fact saved by what we do with money. Or to say it more provocatively, can I buy my way into heaven? Well, friends, it's inconceivable 
that the beautiful gospel doctrine of the first two-thirds of Galatians would somehow be forgotten by the author, and in the final third of the book, everything said in the first two-thirds would get undone. That just doesn't make sense. So there must be something else being said. The entire premise and focus of the book is that we're not saved by our works, but by Jesus' works. So what did these verses then mean? Well, friends, it is faith, not works, that save. Amen? But over the long haul, genuine biblical faith is by necessity going to be accompanied by works. It is always God's design that every follower of Jesus Christ would find in their own lives increasingly the gospel being adorned by good works that magnify Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but saving faith never remains alone. It will, if it is genuine, be evidenced and confirmed and demonstrated by works. Life in the Spirit necessarily includes generosity, not because it saves, but because it shows one is saved. Church, look at the strong language that starts verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Friends, those words mean, brothers and sisters, turning up your nose at God won't work. God knows what's in our hearts. God knows how much we have. God knows how much we earn. God knows whether we're being generous or not. And God knows that to the extent that we are generous may be revealing for us to the extent that we are spiritually healthy. Verses 8 and 9 say so clearly that to claim to have trusted Jesus Christ for salvation to claim to have the Holy Spirit infusing you with resurrection power, to claim to have bent your knee to God, submitting to Him as Lord, and then to not show the fruit of a changed life, especially the fruit of a changed life in relationship to money, and to think that God doesn't see and God doesn't know is a grave error. To claim to be part of the family of God but make no contribution to the family, that's not saving faith. Don't be deceived. We reap what we sow. Now, that's the negative way of putting it. But to put it more positively, when we sow to the Spirit, when, when everything in our lives is increasingly about magnifying God, not because of law, but because of grace. When we are increasingly all about blessing God's people with whatever we have and leveraging our resources to advance the great mission of making disciples, then we gain an ever-increasing confidence that in the end, we will, in fact, have eternal life. This sowing to the Spirit through generous living is simply another way of saying what the letter has already told us. That Christians walk by the Spirit, that we live by the Spirit, that we 
keep in step with the Spirit. And that here, in the way the Spirit leads, and it will be different for each one of us. This cannot be applied by saying 8% of what you make, or 10%, or 15%. That's law. Generosity in the New Testament is, as God leads you, you give. One author said it this way, sowing to the Spirit means recognizing where the Spirit aims to produce some luscious fruit for the glory of God and dropping the seeds of your resources in there. What a picture. Church, it turns out that how we use our possessions is an issue of tremendous spiritual weight. That is not a side private matter that it gets down to the very core of the evidence of a life being transformed by the Spirit of God. This is why in our proposed membership statement of faith, uh, fellowship, we specifically address this issue. It's part of the commitment we make to each other in the context of the local church. There's a sentence that says this, we will strive to properly manage the resources God has given us, including our time, Bodies, spiritual gifts, talents, finances, and possessions. Now, if we take this one little paragraph in the book of Galatians, and we sort of zoom out to the 30,000-foot view, and we specifically ask, how does this paragraph fit in light of the whole book? That's the thing that occupied the majority of those hours I talked about earlier this week. Trying to understand what's the relationship of this part to the whole. Because, to be honest with you, it was not immediately clear to me. It felt a little bit out of left field for Paul to be talking about life in the Spirit, the doctrines of grace, and then, poof, money. But I didn't understand how the book was actually working. If we zoom out to the landscape as a whole, here's what we'll see we'll see that the churches in Galatia were full of people who started out what looked like the genuine Christian life, full of faith. The Apostle Paul journeyed to these towns. He gathered people together. He preached the good news of grace, and God rescued people from their sin. He released them from bondage. He gave them new life. And then when it seemed like those new groups of people were strong enough as churches to be self sustaining, then he moved on to the next town. But behind him, as we've talked about so many times, came people who taught a different gospel. They taught it's not faith in Christ alone. It's faith in Christ plus obedience to the Old Testament law. And they taught that in such a way that it took root. They were persuasive. And so Paul, with what seems to be a broken heart and a hot pen, wrote the letter of Galatians. He wrote it to try and rescue them back to the truth. And so chapter after chapter after chapter, in no uncertain terms, he compellingly demonstrates that salvation is by grace, not by works. It's of the Spirit, not of the law. But friends, those churches and 
every other church since then, could take Paul's words and twist them and be mistaken in such a way that we might think, then if salvation's by grace, then it doesn't matter what I do. If I'm saved by my faith alone, then I don't have to be faithful. Do you hear the issue? To, to put it crassly, if I can just get my ticket into heaven, verified and stamped by grace, then I can just throw it away and keep living my life how I always was before Jesus. And that's good enough. But friends, Paul wants to bring us all the way home. And I don't mean your, your physical, earthly address. I mean your heavenly one. Paul wants to pave the way so that we meet Jesus face to face. And we can hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. He wants to convince us that the false teachers were wrong by laboring with us to know the gospel deeply. And therefore, he wants us to have no false sense of assurance. So friend, here's what he's saying. If if I never give to my church, if I don't care about the word being proclaimed, if I never see my attitudes and behaviors being transformed, if we pick up last week, if I never respond well when I'm confronted by my sin, then I ought to feel little to no confidence that I am heaven-bound. But if, as verse 8 says, if I'm working to not grow weary of doing good, which, by the way, friend, if you've been a Christian longer than a month, you have no doubt faced times in which you have, in fact, grown weary of doing good. And maybe, maybe we face a particular temptation of growing weary and doing good with money, with generosity. Isn't it tempting to think, when you look at the back of the bulletin and you see that, that number with the parentheses, which means we're behind, and you have been contributing, isn't it easy to think, it's somebody else's turn. I've done enough. Friend, why should we not grow weary? It's because in due season we will reap the completion of our salvation if we do not give up. And our lack of giving up is rooted not in our own strength and in our own power, but in the Spirit who lives within us. This is why it's so important to give generously. Because we see the gospel fleshing out at work in our practical daily lives in that way. Practically speaking, Church on Mill needs $26,357 before the end of the year to meet our collective 2019 church commitments. But there's something way more important than that. In fact, that's a relatively minor issue of much greater consequence 
is that when we take out those little envelopes in the back of our seats, there are eternal realities at play. Friend, we reap what we sow. People who are never generous mustn't claim to know the God who is ever generous. Incidentally, I think this is one reason why church membership is so important. We need each other to encourage and strengthen and uphold each other that we might not grow weary and give up. We need encouragement and prayer and gentle correction and accountability and the bearing of each other's burdens. And the vehicle for all of that that we sit in in this bumpy road of life is a serious, committed local church membership. What we can do for each other in terms of walking with one another, following the Scriptures together, is far more consequential together than what simple autonomous friendships could ever offer. And so that's the particular example that Paul raises in this text. But if you look with me at verse 10, then in our remaining couple of minutes, I want to show you the broader principle. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I've seen a particular example. Give so that your church can continue to hear the word of God. But the more broad principle is here at the end. Be generous to all people, especially to your church family. Brothers and sisters, life in the Spirit necessarily includes generosity not only to pastors, but to all people, and especially primarily to fellow Christians in the church. This begins, of course, with prioritizing giving to your local church, but it doesn't, of course, stop there. This, if you will, spirit or attitude or heart of generosity spills over everywhere else. Maybe some concrete examples would help. It spills over to your dinner table where there's always an open seat for another brother and sister in Christ to be fed both good food and good conversation. It spills over into how we think about debt. We work really hard as brothers and sisters to live within our means and avoid debt as much as possible, especially consumer debt, so that our resources have this. If you don't write down any other words, to think about and meditate on, write down this word, margin. Margin. The average American spends much more than they actually make. And friend, I, I struggled in math. I had tutors. And I still barely squeaked by. But if I make this and I spend this, then what does that mean long term? It means eventually I'm going to be making this and owing this. And once you're in that hole, it is so hard to get out of. It means that as Christians, we're trying to live under our means in order to create margin so that we can help each other. 
so that there's margin when we hear of another church member who can't make rent this month. And instead of merely praying for them and patting them on the back and saying, God bless you, then that prayer and that blessing can be accompanied by a gift, a grace gift. It spills over into giving to the work of God in other places, funding campus missionaries and having poor college students over to do their laundry and talk about Jesus. It spills over into caring well for the single adults among us. Friends, there are many in our church family who their family is their church family. So it means that as we think about Christmas morning, we're asking around to make sure nobody's going to spend that morning alone. It means we invite them to spend vacation with us and to go to our kids' soccer games. It spills over in that we happily loan our bikes and our cars to each other, that we extend a pillow and a couch when somebody needs somewhere for a few nights. And as a church family, then, it moves even beyond our own church to other Christians in other churches in which we're actively listening for opportunities to do good, to do good to other Christians through grace-drenched, worship-infused, spirit-empowered, radical generosity. But it doesn't even stop there. It moves beyond the family of God out to the world where the world is full of people who have never seen tangible, practical, radical examples of the grace of God. And that can be done, yes, through money. It flows out to how we treat the homeless, to how we relate to our coworkers and the needs they have, to how we think about our neighbors, to our friends at the gym. Friends, verse 10 is a tremendously broad enormously important verse. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. The priority is very clear that it's committed relationships in the church, but secondarily, this generosity is normative. It shapes how we think about and live every moment of every day. We are to practice grace-giving to give both each other and, as we can, all people, the opportunity to see the gospel at work. I love the way Ephesians 2 says it. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the essential message of the Bible is that, that Christ gave himself up. Friend, you as a non-Christian, owe a debt to God that you cannot possibly meet. You cannot make due on it. You, like every other human being, are spiritually bankrupt. And yet in the gospel, there is a riches that are from the very storehouses of heaven, the riches of grace. Jesus came lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in order to take on the debt of sin, and then rose again in victory to show it is paid in full. And friend, if you will believe on this Jesus Christ, if you will turn from a life of sin and turn to Him today, trusting Him to be your Lord and Savior, 
then that debt will be paid. And you forever will be free and clear with God. That's the gospel of grace. And church, it is that gospel that motivates our giving. Certainly, we will be varied in the amounts that we have and in how much stuff we can share. We'll be varied in our incomes. We'll be varied in the past decisions we make made that affect reality today. But we give by the Spirit. We give as we can. We give to all as God gives opportunity. In the Spirit, we generously provide for the work of God. And Church on Mill, if we do, not only will having enough money to keep the ministry of the church pressing forward, not only will that never, ever be an issue, but far more importantly, God will not be mocked, and you will be increasingly sure and convinced that on the last day you will be with Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your good word, a word that tells us not simply what we want to hear, but far more importantly, what we need to hear. I pray this morning for anybody who's heard these words and has never trusted Christ, that they would feel both the weight of their sin, the extent of their debt. and the glorious news of Jesus Christ. We pray that eyes and ears would be open today, that someone, even just one, would trust in Christ today for the very first time. And Father, we pray for us as a church family that, God, we would be increasingly a generous people, a people who hold what we have loosely and give what you give us generously. Who are marked by an ever-increasing selflessness like our Savior who gave himself for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.